This sermon, Seven Shared Virtues, Servanthood, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, April 30th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Good morning. Good morning, Sovereign Grace Church, and good morning to all of the guests that are here today. What a joy it is for me to be with you all, for Elise and I to be with you. If you would stand with me and turn to your Bibles, if you would, uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Gospel of John, chapter 13. I have the joy this morning to be preaching on one of the shaping virtues in Sovereign Grace churches. And I want to say from the onset, um, what a joy it is that I get to preach this particular one on servanthood. I don't know what you may imagine about when we're preaching through a series, how we come to the determination who gets to preach what topic, who gets to preach what text. Uh, Derek does not have a big dial in his office that's got all of the sections on it with our names, Tim, Tom, and we spin it and it lands. Uh, We desperately trust the Lord to lead us as to who would preach. But I just want you to know personally, I'm grateful in God's providence I get to preach on this one. Because I can look you all in the eye and say at the beginning, you, you're a servant. You serve faithfully the body of Christ. What a joy. But let's turn to a portion of scripture uh, that the Lord has just laid on my heart as we preach on this matter of servanthood, this virtue, meaning the presence of this in you. Let's look and see where it has come from. In this Gospel of John, chapter 13, we are nearing the cross of Christ. In fact, the scene we're about to read is, well, it's almost inexplicable, and we'll find out. Let's read this section. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. John writes, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Then Peter said to him, Lord, 
not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Let's pray together. You may be seated. Holy Spirit, we are desperate for your help this morning. Every time your word is open, we are desperate for your help. We miss so much on our own. And so, God, we, we let the Holy Spirit encourage our hearts that we are not alone. You're present. Move on us. Illuminate the word to our very soul. Change us again, into the image of Jesus. Holy Spirit, this is your work, that you would change us into the image of Jesus. We have heard of him again in our singing. We've heard of the Son of God again in our singing, but we have heard the very words of God about Jesus. Holy Spirit, now now illuminate Jesus to us. Magnify him in our minds. Lift him up in our souls. Jesus, receive our affection. We confess our need for you. We're grateful for what you've done for us. Continue to teach us. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. On Sovereign Grace's website and on Sovereign Grace Church, our church's website, you'll find these seven shaping virtues. And in particular, you'll find this one, servanthood. I would encourage you to go there and read these. They're so helpful. On servanthood, it it reads like this. The gospel saves us into a life of service, first to God and then as an expression of that service to others. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as the Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul would have written to the Corinthians. Jesus, our faithful master, defines service as true greatness. In the Gospel of Mark, we have, but whoever would be great among you, Jesus says, must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. He ultimately demonstrated his greatness for us by laying down his life for us. Mark chapter 10, even the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He also calls us to follow his example, to serve not simply in word or talk or in deed, but in truth out of 1 John. Thus we love and care for one another in very practical ways. Romans 12 and Galatians 6. And just like we prayed, the Holy Spirit empowers us for a life of service in the church, for a life of service in the church by distributing gifts to every Christian. And in 1 Peter, Peter writes these words, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Well, here we have just read of the servant, Jesus. In John chapter 13, I provided a, maybe a summary big idea or one of the major truth claims of this text. And that would be understanding that the Lord Jesus is a servant, captures our hearts and makes us joyful servants. And let me reword that or restate that again. Understanding that the Lord Jesus is a servant. Let me unpack that just for a second. Meaning, just like Jesus is asking or states you don't understand, and then he says, do you understand now? Understanding that he is the Lord is so desperately needed. But we discover in our text today, he is the Lord And he wants us to understand he's our slave. This is radical. But this captures our hearts. It gets our attention and it leads us somewhere. It it takes us somewhere. It takes us to become joyful servants. You and I may have come in this morning and say, of course one of the virtues would be servanthood. That's what the Lord has called us to be. Serve one another. Love one another. Those are very familiar words to us. But as we go through this text, you'll discover what the servant is saying about serving. Here's our two points. Jesus is our Lord who served. And two, we are Jesus' servants who now joyfully serve. Point number one, Jesus is our Lord who served. Let's look again at verses 1 through 6. Just before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when The devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, making a towel, 
taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured a basin of water, began to wash the disciples' feet, wiped their feet with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus is our Lord. We know that from what the text tells us clearly in verse 13. We hear this in Jesus' words. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, is a statement of Jesus, the Son of God, being given all power and authority over all things. All things belong to him. In the second half of that verse, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Well, here, here we see and understand what Colossians 1.16 is saying, this first half. The Father had given him all things. We know from Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven. By him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven. He's the Lord of all creation. But also cross-reference the second half of that, that he had come from God and was going back to God. John is still preaching what he said in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with him. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus had come from God. The Lord had come from God and was going back to God. He, God, our Lord. Jesus is this eternal word, the divine logos, that original Greek word for the word. He's the very Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And he now continued to look at verse 4 and 5. He, the King, the Son of God, laid aside his outer garments. It took a towel. This is one of those verses in the text, I think it's right for us to say, is a skyscraper text. Consider, consider just for a moment what is happening in these two verses, four and five. Don't skip on beyond them too quickly. What I mean by skyscraper text is sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, all of a sudden something is said and it immediately shoots to the heights of heaven. And we've already experienced this as we've got into verse one. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Imagine what's happening in that. All of his ministry is building toward this hour. Jesus, what the apostle Paul would say, has come to be crucified on a cross. Jesus now knows in verse 1, that hour has come, a skyscraper text. And the very next thing that's occurring that none of the disciples are aware of personally is that the devil himself 
is now on the move, has been on the move, and is now on the move and has already put it into Judas, who is present at this meal with the disciples. Skyscraper's text is Judas, has now been filled with Satan to betray the very Son of God. The king of the universe is now going to have a man whom he created turn on him and give him up to be crucified. Skyscraper text. And now verse 3. Jesus is the sovereign king over everything. He now knows the Father has given him everything. Skyscraper text. Cannot miss the cosmic profundity of verses 4 and 5. He, the king of all, In just a couple of days before the cross on which Jesus will hang willingly, suffering and shedding his blood as the very Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world, he, our Lord, takes the form of a slave and drops to his knees at the feet of his disciples. His disciples who are doubting, their faith is weak, they're confused, they're arrogant and proud. They're fearful. They're sinful. And Jesus falls at their feet. You and I have to see how this is such a skyscraper text. Jesus, the Lord of heaven, he comes before the disciples and gets on his feet. The very earth that the Lord has made. The dust from which he had gathered in the beginning and formed man, formed woman. He's now kneeling before his disciples with dirty feet. We don't understand what's happening. We can't comprehend what's happening. We know this. We know this. Because of Peter's response. This is us in the text. Peter responds in a way that proves that he does not know what is happening. Jesus is teaching them something. And he has no idea what it is. Well, let me back up. He has already formed his opinion about what's happening. This is very uncomfortable for them all. This is embarrassing to them all. And then we hear John point out Peter's interchange with the Lord. This shocked Peter's senses. You have to go back into the first century and understand what Peter is actually witnessing with the Lord of the universe. Remember what Peter has proclaimed and confessed about Jesus already in Matthew 16. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter had been illuminated by God, Jesus would go on to say, to know who he was. And you could not imagine that the Messiah would suddenly be taking on the form of a slave. What's happening in the first century is Jesus has gone to the lowest point of their culture. He doesn't just come in and serve the men 
by giving them some food. He takes, actually, in that scene and during these times, there were levels of slavery as well. Very different from our understanding of slavery, but still includes our version of slavery, the oppression, the captivity, the bondage. And very likely in this room would have been slaves present, or if they were allowed to have been, they would have been present And one of them could have been giving directions to other slaves, meaning Jesus now falls to the floor as the slave of slaves at the disciples' feet. If you were a slave and this was your job, there was no lower place on the earth. Jesus goes there. Peter would have recoiled. Never. We know that from what he says, never. He could have jumped back and said, guys, you cannot let him do this. He cannot fall down and be our slave. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one that's been teaching us. He's our Lord. He is not our slave. Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. You never. And what's amazing in the text is Jesus now instructs the Lord. He's speaking to Jesus. You, you're going to wash my feet. No, you're not. You're not. We don't understand what's happening. How it's possible that the king of the universe would become a slave. And there he is, Jesus, our Lord, still kneeling before Peter. He doesn't retract back from Peter. He has stripped himself and wrapped himself in a towel, pouring out water into a basin and kneeling before disciple after disciple after disciple, the king of glory kneels on the floor and washes their feet. In just days, the Lord of heaven, the righteous one in holiness and power will humble himself even lower. He will go further. This time, Others will strip him. They'll flog him. And he will pour out his blood. Jesus, the kneeling servant, here in John 13, will become soon the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And he will suffer. And this servant will suffer even unto his death. Jesus, the Lord, takes the form of a slave of slaves. The highest in heaven becomes the lowest on earth. The sovereign one is also the servant. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Jesus was in the form of God 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is our Lord. And shockingly, he's our servant. But Jesus' servanthood wipes away our sin. Jesus' interchange with Peter in verses 7 through 9 reveals another amazing truth and the point of what he's teaching them. It's understood more now as we look at these verses. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here in verse 8, particularly this second half of 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter can see all that's happening in the present. He can see all that's happening in his culture. All he's got to understand what's going on is he's been illuminated to Jesus being the Son of God. Right now he's taking the form of a servant. And he is not going to allow that to happen. And Jesus now takes him, makes a simple statement about, no, you do need me to wash you. But he takes another skyscraper text to elevate what Peter's misunderstanding is and to all those that are present and for you and I this morning also to help us understand we need to be washed. And so he looks at Peter and then Peter begins to get it because of what happens. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Directly connected within the text, you're going to find a little bit later. This is why we left this part about Judas in the text, and I didn't skip over it. Peter responds, well, Lord, not my feet. I mean, not, uh, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. But he goes on a little bit later, and he says, but you're, you're pretty much clean. But he says, you are clean. Meaning, your soul has been washed. You are mine now. You are clean in comparison to that one present. But not every one of you is clean. He's teaching them through serving that they need to be clean. They have a worse problem than their dirty feet. They have a sin problem that would never be allowed to enter heaven. Those Streets of gold would never allow the filthiness of our sin to tread. We need to be clean. At first we didn't understand, but now we're beginning to understand. His blood poured out on the cross will wash away our sins forever, making sinners clean. Our sins are washed away by Jesus' servanthood. 
This act of slavery is pointing them to his cross on which he will bear just in a few days. Our sins on himself will be laid, suffering the wrath that we deserve, and his blood will wash away our sins as he becomes the atoning lamb of God. He will clean us. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who does serve us. And in his servant, serving, he cleans us. Now, does this not capture your heart? Does this now get hold of you? As you begin to understand that we join along with Peter and say within the Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Wash me. I so desperately need you. I begin to understand. I'm understanding more and more and more how desperately I need you. Understanding that the Lord Jesus is our servant, captures our hearts. And now it makes us joyful servants. We've just looked at Jesus, our Lord, who has served. Now, point number two. We are Jesus' servants who joyfully serve. If you'd look back at the text with me. When he had washed, in verse 12, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. Now, look, here's where I would want to say, Yes, I do understand. I get it. I needed you to come and shed your blood for me. But Jesus goes further. We understand. If we understand that, yes, yes. And understand this is what he's saying. If then, in verse 14, I, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So we do understand, but now he wants us to understand all the more. It is in that sense, so what? Now that I know that Jesus is the Savior, it is enough to stand and worship, so let's worship but there is a further answer to now, so what, in the text. He goes on to teach us, there is something we need to do now. I have been your slave. I have been your servant. I am your Lord who has done this. Now, go and do like me. We joyfully become slaves of Christ. Oh, I wish I had time to unpack this. But there's an amazing, joyful change that goes on for the disciple where before we were only bound to Satan. He was our father. We were only given over to sin and evil. But now there's been a massive change in our hearts. Jesus, our Lord, has now come and has become our Savior, has become our servant, has laid his life down for us. And now there is a response within the believer that says, then I will serve you, Lord. 
It's almost as if there's an exchange in the room that night. Well, Lord, then wash me, wash me from head to toe, and I'll give my life for you the rest of my days. There is what the author of a book I've read recently, the title of the book is The Slave of Christ, Murray Harris. Highly recommended book. The Slave of Christ by Murray Harris. And he refers to what's called an exchange of yokes. We joyfully become servants. We joyfully become slaves of Christ. There is a great exchange of yokes, a new yoke for the believer. Here's what he writes. Christian conversion may be described as an exchange of yokes. Slavery to sin, to evil powers, to evil desires is replaced by slavery to Christ. Since life cannot be yokeless, conversion must involve an alteration of sovereignty, an exchange of masters, the assumption of a new yoke, that a service to Christ, that is, service to Christ, whereas the previous yoke was oppressive and chaffing, chafing, the new yoke is pleasant and emancipating. We're now free in Christ to be slaves of Christ. And that grants us freedom. It's an amazing shift that's occurred. There's a beautiful new type of slavery and servanthood now that we take on. It's what Jesus is teaching. A beautiful new yoke we get to embrace. Paul will live this out in Paul's practical theology. His personal application of his deep knowledge of Christ led him to speak and to live and to preach of a tantalizing paradox. A tantalizing paradox is what Harris would call it. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, Paul says, I have made myself a servant, a slave to all, that I might win more of them. But a beautiful exchange of one slavery now for another. But also this tantalizing paradox. We're free. We're free to serve. We're free to serve. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Slaves. His own estimation of himself is I'm now a slave of Christ. And he could say it with a joyful smile on his face and in his heart. Again, in Romans 1, 1, Paul calls himself, the introductory part of his letter to the Romans, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Peter himself, in 2 Peter 1, 1, Peter opens his letter, Peter, a slave of Christ. <laughs> what a great exchange. John Wesley's hymn that we sang this morning has in this particular verse, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Listen to these two sentences in, the, in this hymn. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. You and I, we get to join the hymn writer. We would find our hearts set free in Christ and that we would rise, go forth, and follow thee. So that's why when we say amazing love, how can it be that thou 
my God should die for me. Well, here's our dilemma. We struggle. That's a, that's a huge, sorry, sometimes I overcouch my terms. We are our own Lord. It's part of our dilemma. We are the Lord in our minds, and we are greater than the Master. Verse 16, which we've not gone to, has to help us understand this. No servant is greater than his master, meaning if we are to be servants, there is an assumption that there is the Lord, or at least whatever we're serving, we know that that is our Lord. And that's our dilemma. We've got the wrong Lord, and we want to be served. We are the Lord. We are worshiping and serving the wrong Lord, and then we turn right back around and demand that others, that others would worship us, serve us. You may be present this morning, and you have not submitted your life to Christ as your Lord. Now look, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard probably this phrase, well, they believe in Jesus they believe all the things the scriptures would say about Jesus, but they've not made Jesus their Lord. It is a simple kind of statement. And it's like, well, yeah, that's, that's true. It's actually more profound than you can imagine. It is one thing to acknowledge who Jesus is. You can say that he's the Savior. You can say that he's the Lord. And yet you personally, unwilling to submit to him as the Lord. You may be here this morning and you think, there is no way, there is no way I would submit to anyone. You need a Savior, and you're already submitting to someone. If you are without Christ this morning, it doesn't mean you're not without a Lord. You do have a Lord. It's likely yourself. Joined. Joined with whatever it is you're serving. You may have a friend, and they mean more to you than, than that. You may have something that you like more than that, and you discover, actually, Jesus is not Lord. That is Lord. I am Lord. You desperately need a Savior. You need to know about Christ, but you need to submit to Christ Faith in Christ is not only assenting to him, it's willingly coming under him. You're already under one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And as he calls you out of that darkness, there is a willingness on your part to turn away and repent of that darkness. Repent of your sins. Repent, repent of these things that you have now made Lord over your life. You need to have your sins washed away by Jesus Often you're called to believe in Christ. Turn away from your sins and believe in Christ. What's happening in your belief in Christ is I'm turning away from sin, but instead of serving that, I will serve him. Confess your sins to the Lord and believe in him as Lord. Well, we joyfully become slaves of Christ, but we also joyfully become servants of one another. 
Now, maybe this is what we walked in this morning assuming. I just, I just need to serve those around me. But now, knowing what the text has revealed, that Jesus is the servant. Jesus is actually, shockingly, the servant. The Lord, who's the servant. He says to us these words in verse 15. I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Now, oftentimes, I know in our culture, we've used that, um, what would Jesus do? And I'm not dissing you. In fact, this morning, you may even have the little rubber band on your wrist still that says, what would Jesus do? I don't want to diss that, but I do want to inform that. So if that's you, please, please hear Please hear this encouragement. It is more than just simply following Jesus' example. Here's one, number one reason. Number, you cannot follow his example without him. You could wake up every day, oh, now what would Jesus do in this situation? You'll find out real quick you can't do what Jesus would do. So that's hard. Maybe that's why we need the rubber band to remind us. It's actually better. Instead of what would Jesus do, what the text is revealing, this is what Jesus has done. It would be, instead of WWJD, it would be WDJD, <laughs> which is, what did Jesus do? And he says, this is what I've done. Now, I've set you an example. Now, do this. Moralism is trying to serve like Jesus did on our own, if even that was possible. But joyful servanthood now results from understanding who Jesus is as Lord and what he has done for us on the cross now becomes our motivation. It becomes a gospel gravitational pull towards servanthood. It's not serving to gravitate, to gravitate, uh, it's not serving to pull us towards Christ. He has pulled us toward himself. That gospel has drawn us to himself. Now there's a new gospel gravity to now serve like he has served. Our motivation is one of obedience. Certainly, but this call and action are fueled and motivated by the obedience of Christ. Remember that in the text. Remember what it points to. He was obedient to the Father, but he was obedient unto the cross, obedient even unto his death. Now that I have done this for you, go and serve one another. Our hearts are flooded with joy as we recall our salvation. We learn what Jesus himself has done for us. He came to serve, and then we joyfully respond to this call to serve. But we're going to find that we're going to need his help. And so the Father tells the disciples, or Jesus tells the disciples, go and wait for the promised one from my Father. Jesus before had promised the disciples that the Father would give us the promised one, the Holy Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, uh, that the church was not lacking in any spiritual gift. Peter in 1 Peter 4.10, as each was given a gift, use it to serve one another. This is the joy that we can find in the middle of this. I understand the profundity better Jesus has become. He's my Lord. He's also my Savior. I want to serve others. But the joy is we also get his help to serve. 
Come tonight to our worship and prayer service. The theme of tonight is we're going to call out to the Holy Spirit to come, to fill us, to revive us, to empower us to do this. Sign up for SGU. Learn more about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what He is, who He is, and what He has done. We will joyfully become servants of Jesus when we apprehend what He has done for us. And we will joyfully become servants of Jesus because we have the promised one at work in us, conforming us to the image of Christ our Lord, our servant. What a great hope we have in this. But here's where the application does require real feet. There is this sense. Bear with maybe the illustration, but as if we are holding on to the Lord and Savior, and by the way, knowing that the perfect servant also has his grip on us first. So while we hold on to the Lord, our Savior, with one hand, we turn and serve others with the other hand, holding on to the great truths of what Christ has done, going with the other hand, and serving them with this joyful purpose is to draw them and hand them to the Savior as well. It's not just a generic service. Look, look what the Lord has done for me. I'm going to do this for you. In our serving, knowing that the Lord is our servant, is I'm going to serve you, Tim, so that you will see the servant. Not so you'll see me a servant, so you would see the servant, the sovereign one, that we would take hold of the Lord, take hold of them, serve them, and serve them. And this is where it didn't help at all to have Grammarly constantly trying to fix my statement, is we take the Lord and we take hold of them and we serve them to him. See how I Grammarly would get after me on that one? We serve them toward Christ, responding amazement that the Lord would fall to the dirt for me. I would turn and I would serve those around me for the purpose that they would see the Savior who has come to serve them. He served us and we were completely unworthy. And so we now serve him who is wholly worthy. And with his grip firmly on us, we now turn and serve others joyfully while handing them off to Christ. Now here's a little more specific application, and then we will close. So drilling down further into so what? Okay, now I know I need to serve. Maybe you're discovering that you don't like to serve, or that you're not serving or you haven't been serving. So here's the question. Why am I not serving? Let's just humble ourselves before the Lord. Why am I not serving? What's going on? Here's a follow-up to that. Am I a man under authority? Meaning, is Christ really my Lord? So this is why the call of the gospel goes out because you may discover you're not interested in serving people because you don't have the Spirit of God at work in you. You've not submitted your life to Christ, 
promised one has not been given to you. Believe in Christ. The promised one will be given to you, and you will find that you want to serve. Am I able to submit to Jesus and his call and command to serve? You may be a struggling Christian, but I would honestly have to say, when this is going on in my own life, that's an area that actually needs to grow up in Christ. I cannot remain an infant in the area of serving. I must serve. I always use this as an illustration when I drive home at times. I will literally pull in the driveway with the mind of a servant. I mean, really. I'm, I'm having real servant thoughts. Like, I'm going to walk in the house. This is back when Lisa's taking care of the kids, or she's now at home taking care of everything else. By the way, when the kids move out, empty nesters, your wife is still working and serving very hard. So I pull in the driveway. I'm already thinking, I'm going to go in and serve. I can tell you, it doesn't take me 15 steps, and I'm in the front door, and I'm swinging it open, and I'm ready to be served. I'm going in with the mindset, I am going to serve her. I am going to cook. I'm going to cook salmon. She knows I don't like salmon. I'm going to do whatever she wants me to do. Before I hit the tile in our hallway, I'm already thinking, I want a lot of things, and I hope she's going to provide them. I need to grow up on this one by submitting to Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He has called me and commanded me to serve. Am I able to even submit to others? Can I come under my peers and fellow servants? When I survey the scene of all the servants and look across the room and I see the other men and women that I know serve alongside us in the church, am I willing to come under and serve you? Can you ask me to help? And me say, absolutely. Can you, when someone comes and asks you, am I my own Lord? That's a hard one. Why am I not serving? Well, are you your own Lord? You couldn't even imagine serving others. In fact, you privately want them only to serve you. Or you find it far too easy to judge others rather than to serve them. Are you kidding me to serve them? Are others beneath me? Oh, go back. I'm just going to blow up my notes here for a minute. Go back to the dirt on the floor where the sovereign one of the universe so loved his disciples. He would wash their feet. I don't think he's only giving them an example. I think in his instruction... It's because he deeply loves these men. He has decided, though he's the king and the sovereign one of the universe, he will go beneath them. He's going to bear our sins on the cross. Is that not going beneath us? Can we not go beneath one another? Maybe here's another question. In my lack of serving, so there's an assumption. I have to be careful with this, but I think it's needed today. Is there evidence of deep selfishness, a narcissistic self-focus? This is serious. The scriptures clearly 
call us to repent. It does not lack compassion to call a narcissist out. They may have a real, real brokenness and weakness, and it only is self-centered. But it is not, it is not wrong to go and help them see their need for a savior. I'll take your questions later on this one. I'll field that for the guys. And then when I can't answer it, I'll hand you directly off to them to help. The scriptures clearly calls us to repent on this one. The Bible would call this kind of response rebellion towards God. I'm not talking about the extreme cases where there's a severe special need in an individual's life and all they can think of is the pain and the brokenness and the simple thinking that's going on in their mind because sin has so racked the world that when they were born, they were not whole. Oh, I think there's a compassionate servant next to every one of our handicapped dear ones. Working for the school district, I'd walk down the hallway and I'd see teacher after teacher leading these children whose bodies and minds are so broken by the ravageness of sin of the world, not their sin. And I thought, oh, what it must be like in heaven when he takes them all in. He's gone beneath them. Paul says this straight on, we are no longer serving ourselves, no longer serving ourselves. We are to serve others. Second Corinthians 5 Romans 7, Romans 15, rather, we would live for the Lord. Humble yourself and repent of that self-oriented self thinking. Now I'm just going to jump right to the end and close. If I could have the band come up. But play quietly because I'm going to drag it out just a couple of minutes. <laughs> Sovereign Grace churches this, uh, churches, this is called a virtue because it's present in the churches. It's not only something we want to attain, but it's something we always want to remain focused on and continue to pursue. It is a virtue, but it is a virtue we want to continue to grow in, become more healthy, to become more strong, and to pursue these things. Lisa and I have been in Sovereign Grace churches, in these two churches, the one in El Paso and here, for more than 38 years. Joyfully, Joyful servanthood is the result of being captured by the servanthood of our Lord Jesus. I would say, and I think I could say this on authority of evidence of the scripture, joyful servants abound in sovereign grace churches because of our gospel-rich culture that has led us to understand what Jesus has done exemplified in the verses that we've read. Our cross-focus has led us to glorify and to worship God. Our cross-focus has led us in these deep truths which the Holy Spirit has renewed in our hearts and minds through the faithful preaching of the gospel. The best counselor's office in Sovereign Grace Churches is in this room on Sunday morning when the word is preached and Christ is faithfully declared to the church. Your greatest need is Christ. Come and hear of Christ. More specifically, in this room, this virtue permeates this church. I do have a wide experience in sovereign grace because of how old I am and how long I've been in it. This virtue permeates this church. Lisa and I have had a front row seat now for some time, but particularly this last year, as person after person. First-hand witness is person 
after person with pronounced servanthood gifts in the saints have served our family toward Christ. This morning, I approached Sue from across the room. She's unaware I'm calling her out. And as I walked towards Sue, she took her coffee, a lot of stuff in her left hand. She took her coffee and held it with her left so that she could hug me. Sue and her husband, they're retired. They were snowbirds. Now they're sovereign grace saints. (laughs) Have, I think, been in every room in two of our homes, faithfully serving, sweeping, and painting. The list goes on in this room. It's who you are. Lee says, a dear friend in the McLeods that lives so close to us, and I'll bet Scott's thinking, we got to move away from these people. <laughs> Faithfully serving in our yard and in our home. Painting. Serving. That's just in our house. They've been in yours. I know they've been in yours. They've served you. They've come alongside you. They've laid their lives down for you. Why? Why is this church so marked by this? It's because this church is so marked by Christ and him crucified. Receive God's joy. If you would stand and I'll pray. Father, I pray that you would crank out the servants all the more. Our hope is that you do it the same way every time. You come to sinners lost in darkness and you wash us clean and set us free. You fill us with your spirit And now something that never was present is now present. A desire to serve you and a desire to serve your saints. Do it again. Crank out servants by revealing the servant, Jesus, to us. Jesus, I pray that every person this morning would remember you on the floor. And that was pointing to you bleeding out on the cross. Thank you for serving us like that. We want to serve you now. We want to serve one another. It's only by your grace that's possible. And we have your grace. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.